In this episode, uh, we're going to sit down with my friend Luke, who runs an organization called First Root, and we go into uh, financial literacy for children and why it's important as parents that we need to take steps into making sure that our children understand money. We could talk about personal protection and loss prevention and all the things that we do in Close Quarter Dad, but financial literacy and being able to understand how money works and having uh, agency over money, knowing the difference between you know liabilities and assets, we talk about that, but using a model like what First Root offers is absolutely incredible, and it's gonna be a complete game changer for school districts, for parents, for communities, most of all, for children. So I want you to stay with me with this episode. It was a bit of a mind blower for me, and I think it is going to be for you, uh, especially if you sit with those concerns as a dad, as a parent, about how is my child going to learn about money? How is my child going to be able to grow and understand how this works? Uh, This is an incredible episode, and I want to thank Luke for all the incredible work that he's been doing. And uh, let's get started on this episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to this episode of Close Quarter Dad. And today I am joined with my friend Luke Homan. Luke's a serial entrepreneur uh, with two successful exits, and he's also the founder of a fantastic resource that we're going to be going deep into today called First Root. It's a startup that's really uh, devoted to teaching financial financial literacy and civics through participatory budgeting. Uh, in schools. So there's a whole lot that I just said, and we're going to really kind of unpack all of that. Now, the goal with this um, episode, let's just kind of get started here and, uh, and, and zoom in. I believe that we can talk about personal protection. We can talk about loss prevention and preparedness. We can speak about family unit safety. We can talk about hardening the home. But all of that really, truly comes down to um, having resources available to do that and understanding the access uh, and literacy uh, and intelligence behind those resources. And I'm a huge fan of that. And I believe that when we talk about money with our children, and I'm hoping that Luke might be able to help me to establish this even better through this discussion, I really try to approach it as if our home is a castle, you know, well, we have to sort of protect that castle. And we also have to make sure that inside that castle, it's uh, productive, it's nurturing and nourishing. And we want to be able to teach uh, the people inside that castle, uh, i.e. our children, how to expand and to uh, not just survive, but to also thrive and to not hide. Um, And to have these discussions about financial literacy and understanding how money works is extremely important, but also why it works. Uh, And then with every castle, the castles are surrounded by the the communities and other castles and trade and export and being able to help those communities and those people sustain through your acts of service and kindness and production is really important. So these holistic uh, discussions about finances, um, financial security, financial um, growth, financial knowledge is extremely important when we talk about the safety of our children, uh, them building a sense of confidence uh, and growing into becoming independent, free-thinking young people that we as all parents want them to have. So um, I'm really excited to invite Luke into this discussion. Thank you, Luke, for being here with us today. Adam, I'm so happy to be here. I, as uh, as you know, and now the listeners will know, I'm also a dad, four kids, 
So I'm, I'm pretty excited to be here. Yeah. Yeah. We, we spoke about that a little bit beforehand. It's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, such a beautiful ride to have, uh, four children. It's a, it's a unique thing for sure. So absolutely. Luke, let's just jump right in. I want to talk about, um, before we get into, you know, I mentioned in the intro civic engagement, it's something that I know that you speak about with uh, first group, but before we do that, if you could help me, uh, get a clear kind of an 800 foot view, let's go macro here on, when you're when you um, have been doing this work as an entrepreneur, the businesses that you've built, and now the work that you're do, doing with uh, with First Root, talk to me about financial literacy, what that means to you as a businessman and entrepreneur, but also as a dad. Sure, I think that to answer that question, we have to go back a little bit in time to know the genesis of how First Root was created. As you know, as the kids would say, what's the origin story? Because now that superhero you know, movies are out there, everyone wants to know the origin story. Yeah, so right. the origin story for all of this work came over a decade ago when I was working in corporate, uh, uh, large corporations, and I looked at how the annual budgeting process was done. And so taking the dad thing away for a moment and just looking at business, the annual budgeting cycle of most businesses is an awful garbage process where you have a limited amount of money and it's like the hunger games you've got a pack of leaders fighting over a limited resource and you're supposed to collaborate in these companies except at the end of the year you fight over the budget it's it's really not a great experience so i designed collaborative techniques where people would come together and instead of having a competitive structure over making budget decisions, it was a collaborative structure. And we did that by saying, uh, but, and again, I'm going to use big numbers because we worked with big companies like Cisco and BMW, whatever. So let's say your, your budget to build the new thing that goes in the car for BMW is $100 million, the new head unit. And you've got maybe $130 million of requests and ideas and features and stuff that you want to build. So, so how do you do that, right? We, and this happens in every walk of life, life, personal or professional, and I'll come back to that. So what we would do is we would say, well, let's put 10 people at a table, give them equal portions of the budget, each has $10 million, and then look at the list and figure out how they would collaboratively fund all of those projects. And that notion of we have an equal portion of the money and we're collaboratively funding it created massive breakthroughs because we could scale it. We could take 100 people into 10 groups of 10 and then look at the results across all of the individual groups and start to see where the pattern of the larger organization, where the energy was. And so you would see quite literally 10 out of 10 teams would put their money towards one thing and zero out of 10 things would put no money on another idea, which meant it was a good idea, but it wasn't good enough in comparison to the other choices we make. So I did that in business. And then I started taking that same software platform and philanthropically applying it to cities, helping hundreds of citizens come together in different cities to work on the city budget. And then one night we're at dinner and I said, hey, dad's got an idea. And of course, everyone starts laughing because we know how dad's right. ideas often go at dinner. <laughs> and I said, what if we tried this in school? And my second child was an eighth grader in middle school. And my family's like, what? I'm like, what if we 
what if we did what I'm doing in, in business and in cities and try it in schools? Let's give the kids money and teach them how to invest it and make their school better. And so we started as modestly as you can imagine. We took the software that I was using in business, which wasn't optimized for kids. We gave the school $500 under one condition. The kids were in control. And it was amazing. All the adults thought, oh, this isn't going to work. And I had this kind of faith that it would. And the kids created almost 500 unique ideas. And the kids whittled it down and eventually voted on uh, a improvement to their school where they replaced the water fountain with an LK water bottle refilling station so they could be more uh, environmentally climate conscious because they were bringing their water bottles. And as we all know, trying to fill up a water bottle in a normal water uh, fountain is awful. It was this breakthrough and I got hooked. So we started doing more with, work with schools. It came to pass that uh, the, the fates of life smiled on me and I was able to sell that company and I completed my integration tasks and I just was drawn back into what could I now do to expand, accelerate and try and improve financial literacy. Cause the secret thing I found Adam was this simple rule, which it's so simple, it seems kind of silly to say it, but sometimes the simple things are the things you go, aha, the most over. By giving kids real money to manage, they learn how to manage real money. And that stands in contrast to games and simulations and stock market simulations. Right now, one of my sons is a senior in high school and he's going through a stock market simulation and it's awful. They have 12 weeks with $25,000 of simulated money to see who can make the most money in 12 weeks, which is violating every known principle that exists around proper compounding of interest, yeah. proper valuations of, of, of investments aligning choices that you make in your in your world about your time horizon for when you need the money. And so so I spend a, an inordinate amount of time rejecting everything that he's being taught in school and teaching him the right thing, which is actually in some ways effective, right? Because you can say like, look, this is what they're teaching you and this is why it's dead wrong. And then using that to build out first root. So the summary is the origin story of first root was looking at how we work in business, extending it to how we collaborate in cities, and now bringing it into schools with a specific goal of hands-on learning by doing how to manage money by having a portion of money to manage. That's pretty fascinating. Um, I want to take a step back. A couple of questions popped up as you were going through that, that case study with the $500. Sure. What were the... Um you know, what were, what were some of the uh, rules that the kids had to follow there? And what were some of the outcomes that you were encouraging them to go for? Or were there none? Let's just see where it lands. There's virtually no rules that we put. Well, we put zero rules in our software. None. There's no rules. There's no ads. Um, yeah. I'm a dad. I'm building software for kids. I'm not going to sell them to advertisers like Meta does 
or other companies that are based on advertising, all advertising-driven companies devolve into treating a human as an asset that you sell. And I just can't do that to kids. I can't do that to adults either, right? I think that... The, the question came up when you said they came up with 500 ideas. Was it because you suggested with each dollar there should be an idea or were there like 500 no, kids no, and each no, no, kid no, has yeah, to come up with that? No, 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 correlation to the amount okay. of ideas. Okay, all right, okay. That's a good question, and, and I can see how that was. We literally, uh, in that particular program, and each program has its own variation, but in that program, uh, the middle school is a pretty big middle school. It's got 1,200 kids. So there were about 35 classrooms, and what we did was – for a two-week period in each classroom in their 15-minute opening segment, they would talk about ways to improve the school, and then they would log into our software and add those ideas. Um, and, you know, they're kids, right? Some of them were silly ideas, like let's have a duck pond. And some of the ideas were good but vastly exceeded the budget, like let's buy new bleachers for the track or let's refurbish the track. It's a great idea, but it's going to totally exceed – and then some of the ideas started to really become uh, doable, like let's get some more sports equipment and let's get a 3D printer. Mm -hmm. And so that very first program has evolved com com completely, right? What I learned, of course, was that software written for large corporations was too complex to meet the needs of the kids. There were parts of what we do in, in large corporations that were overwhelming to the kids. And a, and a specific example is, if you or I in a, were in a work context, we might negotiate the scope of a project and therefore negotiate the investment that we make. We might be not having enough investment with too small of a scope, or we might be saying, wow, we don't need quite that much done in this time frame. Let's lower the scope and lower the money so we can put some money elsewhere. Those kinds of negotiations are too hard for the kids. So what we found was that the kids needed to have uh, discrete yes or no choices, like I want to buy a 3D printer, yes or no. I want to get a new um, uh, soccer net, yes or no. I want to buy new school uniforms, yes or no. So we, we rebuilt, using the same conceptual model, an entirely new software system uh, geared for kids in schools and designed with a curriculum that goes back to your first point. It supports both financial literacy and civic engagement. Because we have to also start showing our kids what positive civic engagement looks like, what coming together as a community to solve a problem looks like. I'd like to go there. But first, I'm wondering, is in this experience with the with the five hundred dollars, was there a risk of them losing that money at any time? No, uh, because we don't work with schools that are unwilling to commit to a portion of money up front. Mm. Um, in fact, there's been some, there's, there's one I live in Silicon Valley, uh, and we have a lot of wealthy people here and, and I, we actually chose not to work with one school because the PTA said, we'll fund your program, but we want to be the ones who pick the students' ideas. So the students can create the ideas, but we we, as the adults are going to pick the ideas. And I said, well, that kind of defeats kind the point. Kind of removes the whole – yeah, right? Yeah, totally. And, and it was a trust issue. They didn't trust their kids. And, I, and, wow. and I've been doing this for years now. Our software has been used in dozens and dozens of schools. And Adam, the kids make great choices. Uh, elementary kids buy trees and equipment. And, yeah, they buy fidget toys. Well, what's wrong with buying fidget toys? Um, 
And it can be very profound. We worked with one school in Queens in New York City, and they bought more, a high school, more feminine care hygiene products for the girls' bathroom. So the, 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 they buy books, they buy printers, they buy uh, 3D printers because that's hot. They buy uh, athletic equipment. They buy uh, th things that are about school spirit, murals, and um, other kinds of programs. Uh, they they want to refurbish facilities and infrastructure. Uh, so the the choices that the kids make are are from uh, are they're, they're they're profound. Now there's a there's a corollary here, and this is something I work with my kids on. And this is one of those kinds of dad moments for the dads out there. An important part of financial literacy and imparting financial wisdom is to try and not judge the financial choices that are made by other people. Is if you go to that castle metaphor, right? Within that castle, there are different forces and you don't know what's happening. Um, and so when we make an assessment of the choices that the children made, we have to remember that they're making it from their perspective and they're resolving their needs. And I've had parents say, well, what if the kids buy a party? I'm like, okay, then they voted for it. They, they chose to buy a party. That's what they needed. Um, now, typically though, uh, from even from an adult's perspective, the kids buy great stuff. The, the kids make great purchases because eventually it sinks in. Oh, this is real money. They're, yeah. they're, we don't want a duck pond. We don't want balloons in a party. We want something that's going to make a material, meaningful change to our school. Interesting. And this is what your what the participatory budgeting is. Uh, that's right. It's, so, it's what so we're leading let's towards. Talk about the flow. Yeah. So it, it it is insufficient to drive up to a school, toss out some Benjamins out the car window, right. and say, "Hey, it's figured out." That, that's not going to work. So our software guides students through a five-phase process known collectively as participatory budgeting. In phase one, it's a discovery phase. The kids are given activities to go talk with other kids, talk with other teachers, and identify opportunities that their school might need improvement in. Now, sometimes the school will kind of, uh, a, a program will be thematically structured, like schools that, uh, private schools or charter schools that are have values, they might pick one of their values like school spirit or pride or community service. That's the theme of our program or school safety. Um, we're working with a school, George Washington High School right now in Philadelphia, and their theme is social and emotional wellness with each other because we've been through the the COVID pandemic, it's been hard. So sometimes there's a theme. And in that discovery phase, we identify that theme and create ideas. And the next phase is a design thinking phase, open-ended exploration, and it's called the dream phase. So discover and then dream. Give us your ideas. Try not to be too worrying about how you implement those ideas or how expensive they are because we can sometimes figure out how to take an expensive thing and make it, uh, restructure it so that we can afford it. And I'll come back with an example in a bit. The next phase is a design phase. Take the raw idea and put enough details into it 
so that it could be implemented. Now, there is a checkpoint here, Adam, where the school and the school teachers will review those ideas before it goes into voting. And what we're looking for are to making sure that the, the proposals created and refined by the kids are acceptable to the school. I'll give you an example. We, one school, the kids wanted to change the lunchtime from 12.15 to 12 o'clock. You can't kind of do that in the middle of the school year, right? There's too much complexity. Another school, and this is happening right now, uh, Fremont High School in Sunnyvale, California, one of their proposals and their program right now is they want to refurbish the softball field, but it's already scheduled to be refurbished in a year and a half on a bond that we passed as parents. So we're going to educate the kids that we're not going to let you go forward with that idea because it's already part of our plan. And that increases communication. It's not about making the kids wrong. It's That's about, a good thing. Yeah. You know, recognizing. Now, the proposals that meet the guidelines and fit the budget are put into a voting ballot. And each kid in the school or in the program that's defined by the school can vote, meaning sometimes it's the seniors, sometimes it's a, a dance club, or sometimes it's the entire school. But those kids vote. And because the proposals were predetermined to be acceptable, whatever the results are, are implemented. And that's the last phase. So it's, we call it the 5D process. Discover, dream, design, decide, and do. And in the do phase, to the extent possible, we also try to get the kids involved in implementing it. So Hegel Elementary School in Madison, Wisconsin, they they voted to get a tree and this is this great story where in the dream phase they're like let's get a 30-foot oak we need an oak well in the design phase they realized we can't afford it but then they found a parent who was an arborist and he said he would give them a tree so the cost went to zero and then they were able to buy a bench for the tree and then the final phase in the do phase he said look i'm giving you this tree but i'm not going to plant it you have to plant it. So then the kids dug the hole, the kids planted the tree, and now the kids are maintaining the tree. So you get them engaged in their own environment. And in the process, they learned about a job called an arborist. Uh, these were fifth graders. So they learned about, oh, if you like, he's like, look, I like working outside. I didn't want to work in an office environment. I didn't want to get a math degree. Yeah, I went to college, but I took these kinds of classes and now I'm an arborist and I love it. I'm outside every day. I'm helping trees grow. And there was this eye-opening experience. And so uh, we try to integrate community. We try to integrate parents uh, into this process. Uh, but the kids are in control, right? That's, that's the overriding uh, worldview that we have. This is phenomenal. There's a, I'm going to take a couple stops here and just recognize a couple of things. A lot of the discussions that I have probably, like yourself, Luke, is discussions with parents who are just sort of fed up with the school systems, not teaching what this type of financial literacy, not teaching business or entrepreneurship. And like you shared with us, um, your child dealing with, you know, what like the stock choices, uh, you know, there's really no risk there. There's, you're not, you're not, I, I've, I've bumped up against this quite a bit with my own children and other parents. And it's, uh, do you, you either go from dealing with it and, and trying to teach it on your own when your kids are in the school systems, hoping the school department, getting involved in the school department and, and really trying to push that forward. But especially in the public school systems, 
that's that's a that's really really tough. Um, so the kids can go to a charter charter private school, uh, or they get homeschooled and it's taught there. Now I know the experience with my own children, a non negotiable, <laughs> with all of them, uh, is that I made them all read um, Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad for Kids, uh, just to understand that quadrant, just to start like really. I think the most important takeaway there is getting your money, you know, not working for money, but having money work for you. If my kids could, by the time they're 10 or 12, 10 to 12 years old, understand that paradigm going forward in life, then um, that's a powerful thing. And, uh, and, and wanting to start a business. Like I want to go to, I want to go to school for business. I want to, my response to my children was don't go to school for business, start a business and learn how to run the business. You don't have yeah. to go to school for that. Step into right. it. So for the listeners who don't know the book that Adam is referencing, it's one of the true classic series of books out there about personal finance. And the, the general series is the Rich Dad, Poor Dad series. Yeah. And Kiyosaki is a fantastic author, and he's written a number of books. There's Rich Dad for Kids. There's Rich Dads for Teenagers. And and uh, Adam, just to bring everyone along with what you and I know sure. uh, from our reading is – the basic idea is that an asset generates income for you and a liability requires you to pay for it. And the pattern of wealth creation is to create assets. And the, the, I think the, the wisdom of Kiyosaki's work is sometimes what we think of as an asset is actually a liability. Like your home is a place to live and you want a home for sure, but it's not an asset. It is a liability because you're putting money into the home. It's not putting money into you. That's okay, right? Whether it's a home or an apartment, it doesn't matter. We, we need a place to live. So it's okay to have liabilities, but the goal is to create these assets. Where I differ and where our program differs, Adam, from the Kiyosaki work is we've talked with kids and they are right now bombarded with entrepreneurship as the mechanism for being successful. And so when I look at the landscape of what's out there to help kids, there's for example, Junior Achievement or DECA or other programs that are pretty good at helping entrepreneurship. But when in our program, when we get to the, the notion of what are your pathways after school for creating a life that you love, there's military service. And we are so thankful for the people who serve our country and serve us as Americans in the military. There's public service. Uh, there's being you know a teacher or being a fireman or being a public safety servant or even getting a job in the permitting office in a city um there's there's staying at home like creating a pair bond my wife and i are very in a sense old-fashioned uh we decided early on in our lives that our choice was that she would stay at home be the house manager and um uh i would be the quote-unquote breadwinner um, by the way, we have a funny way of describing that at parties. Um, when, Because I think of kids as an investment in our future. So when people ask me what I do, they're like, oh, you're a software. And then when they ask my wife what she did, she was always like, oh, I'm a homemaker. I'm like, no, you're not going to tell your other people that you're a homemaker. You're going to tell them that you're the home and family investment manager. And then people, it's so fun to watch my wife. She's That's like, yeah, cool. I manage your investment portfolio. And, <laughs> and then they're like, really? And they're like, she's like, yeah. How's it going? It's going pretty good, right? Right. So I love what you're doing with your kids. And I would just encourage that 
if, if a child wants to have a path for entrepreneurship, the, the Rich Dad, Poor Dad and the other related books are fantastic. But I know for sure my kids, one of them might be an entrepreneur, but like my son Joe that I mentioned earlier, who's a senior in high school and getting ready for college, he wants to be a chemist. He's not going to be the CEO of a, of a startup that he's founding, you know, chemi- chemical company. Maybe one day, I doubt it. He wants to be a bench chemist and, and work in, the, in, in a, a way that, uh, I think it's nuclear chemistry now that he wants to explore. Um, so I, so I want to point out that, that the rich dad, poor dad mindset is super valuable. But what we also want to do is make sure that we're super inclusive of the range of of uh, uh, professions that that are are open to our absolutely children. yeah 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 my oldest son is uh, graduating in a couple of weeks uh, with his degree in uh, plumbing and electrical control and uh, he's he's been since he was fourteen just working out on jobs and he he first learned uh, you know I got him a job cleaning up job sites just like I did I want him to learn how to carry boards and pick up nails and clean up job sites and he did that with a with a deck company and uh, he moved on to plumbing and then he went to college for plumbing and uh, really excited about that so it's interesting to see and so just so I could summarize all this Luke. Um, what we have here with First Root is an amazing application and opportunity for schools. To it's the schools that actually fund the program. First Root is the, is the the solution that it runs upon, uh, yes. and, and and provides the environment for the kids to make these decisions and educates them and sort of guides them through the system uh, where the money isn't coming from, say, the money's not coming from First Root or it's not coming from wherever, but the school department's doing it and First Root is implementing it. Is, is that accurate? That is accurate. Yeah. Uh, I would say that there's a couple of extensions. That core is, that foundation is accurate. Now, when I started the company, I created the company as a benefit corporation, which is a new kind of corporate structure. It's not a nonprofit, but it's not a only for-profit company, meaning if you look at my articles of incorporation, like how I legally structured the biggest business, we have a legal responsibility to promote financial literacy and civic engagement. So so I have a, a stated purpose to my company. Now, uh, part of that fulfillment of that purpose is we've created the First Root School Fund, and we will make targeted grants to the extent that we can to schools to help them get started. Uh, we target uh, schools in um, lower income areas, Title I schools, so we're not like trying to support uh, super wealthy schools or private schools that have big endowments. We're really trying to help get this program kick-started. Now, the sources, we, we, we didn't talk about this, but we should talk about how much money do you give the kids and where does that money come from? So the amount of money we give to the kids is usually around $2,000 to $10,000. It's enough money to be meaningful to a kid, but it's not so much money that the parents take over and take control. So you can imagine, like, let me pick a really silly number. Hey, we're going to give the kids a million bucks. Well, you know the parents are going to be all over that. No, we want to be in control. It's too much money, blah, blah, blah. But... Uh, and and it's it's usually kind of scaled by grades. So in the elementary schools, it's like one to two thousand. In the middle schools, it's 
around 5,000. In high schools, it's around 10,000. Of course, scaled by the number of kids in the school, et cetera, et cetera. But those are kind of meaningful numbers associated with the cognitive capacity and life experience of the kids. I mean, the high school kids are starting to get jobs, they yeah, cars. Sure. I mean, they're not, they're not unfamiliar with money. Now, the second part is where does that money come from? Well, you, you nicked off one of the sources of funds. Every principal in every school district has a small amount of money that's their discretionary funds. And those discretionary funds are common in, in, in terms of uh, ability to fund a program like First Root. The second source of funds are for schools that have them, parent-teacher associations uh, or parent-teacher organizations, PTAs, PTOs, or education foundations and school districts, and we've gotten funding from them. The third source of funding, which is kind of really wonderful, is philanthropic organizations who want to promote financial literacy or civic engagement. So we've had Rotary and Rotarians sponsor programs. We've had the League of Women Voters sponsor. The League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan uh, uh, group of women who basically say, we want to promote democracy, and this is a great way to teach kids how to uh, engage in democracy uh, and democratic practices. Uh, and then the last uh, group of, of sponsors is financial services firms. So a great example of that sense. is, right, Advisors Excel in Topeka, Kansas. They're a hugely successful financial services firm, something like $12 billion of assets under management. So you can imagine there's a lot of wealth, and they care about promoting financial literacy and wealth. So they're sponsoring schools and really digging into the financial literacy side of the curriculum. I hear you say, Luke, um, you, you're talking about financial literacy and civic engagement. And one time you said financial literacy or civic engagement. Do is is with for, first root and the and how we're teaching the kids. Is it financial literacy with it? Like, are we are we making sure that 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 the goal is civic engagement and financial literacy, and they, they're they're really sort of uh, tethered to one another. Is that accurate? Or are we t teaching them in, in different components? And it's their choice how far onto the civic engagement lane they wish to merge. Yeah. So, it, and I probably am working this out in my own mind still. Um, part of this is that you can't have a civil society without a financial component. We pay taxes for a reason. Absolutely. And you can't have your financial management without a civic component uh, because you do have choices about how you spend money. And I'm going to come back to that specifically. So the way we designed our curriculum is here's a financial literacy curriculum and here's a civics curriculum. And you can also mix and match between them. And this is where uh, for parents who feel frustrated about the schools teaching or not teaching financial literacy, keep in mind that we are the source and the solution of the problem. And what I mean by that is the schools are teaching according to the curriculum guidelines of the state that the school is within. If the state has a financial literacy education mandate, like Wisconsin, Ohio just passed a, a, a legislation, 
Um, Oklahoma has had it for a while. Uh, Montana has had it for a while. Florida just passed legislation. Uh, those states have personal finance as an education requirement, a half course or more for graduation. Now, what about all these other states? Well, I live in California. We have no personal finance mandate. Now, many schools are choosing to do personal finance, but now you get into this issue where, well, there is an appropriateness to establish some guidelines. Like, uh, for example, Texas has a personal finance mandate, and you can just type in uh, state of Texas personal finance um, uh, uh, curriculum requirements, and boom, you'll be taken to the website, and you can see the kinds of things that a curriculum needs to teach, like how to balance a checkbook, what is an investment, what's the difference between um, risk and reward, why do we need insurance? So I think that if, if parents really listening to this deeply care about this notion of personal finance and want schools to do a better job, then the right thing to do from a structural standpoint is look at your state. Many states have active bills uh, in, in the state legislatures to promote financial literacy. So we, we sometimes can, can be unhappy with what's going on with our schools, but remember that our schools are being mandated to cover the curriculum as defined by the state curriculum standards. And if we really want to fix this problem structurally, we definitely want to promote the, the, the legislation that makes personal finance part of the curriculum. Now, civics is in the same boat. There's, there, it's not entirely clear what the state guidelines are around civic engagement per se or civics. Um, and there are better ways to teach things. Um, and usually civics gets rolled into things like um, social studies or other kinds of stuff. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to, to blend these concepts because they're inextricably linked. Yeah. Uh, I, and, and now... One more thing, I want to talk to dads directly. There is no personal and personal finance. Even though I use the word, I'm going to actually now say what, what's wrong with the phrase. Personal finance tends to, to, to have this impression that I make decisions on my own. And what personal finance should mean is I understand how finance works so that I can make decisions in collaboration with others. You wouldn't buy a new car without talking to your wife. You wouldn't buy a vacation home without talking to your wife and your financial planner and probably your kids once they're old enough. You wouldn't go on a vacation without talking to your kids. And so one of the things that we're working on for the future is the first root family edition which is a version of our software that you can use to teach financial literacy in your home as a parent by looking at the decisions we make. Why is it okay that mom and dad, or the parents, I should be very careful about that, so why is it okay that the parents took out a loan to improve our home but won't take a loan to go on vacation? What is it about that? Or when, when our kids walk up to us and say, hey, we want to go to Disney. The tickets are 80 bucks a piece. You and I go, wait a minute. That's, it's actually not, we both have four kids, right? So 
It's not three hundred and twenty dollars to go to Disney. No, it's about twenty thousand. <laughs> right. You're thinking the total cost of ownership. Yeah. You're thinking I got to get a plane flight. I got to get a hotel room. I got to pay for food. I got to pay for the toys that we want to get and the souvenirs. Not that that's wrong. We want to do that. Sure. But but what happens is is when dads, especially dads, don't take a leadership role in breaking out that finance, we learn we lose the very natural way to talk about money and truly educate our kids on why is this a total cost of ownership question and why is it that there's a big difference between the $80 ticket or whatever it is to get into Disney and the actual cost of the Disney vacation. That's what we want to promote because if we do that, we have a really healthy conversation with our kids. We can really truly explain why we did get a loan to replace the windows that needed to be replaced versus we didn't take a loan to get a wedding or a vacation or a whatever. It sounds to me that the offering of engagement with your kids in these types of discussions has just as much, if not even more value than the actual teaching of them, the deployment of these lessons and getting them to learn that, but actually bonding and, and using this uh, participatory budgeting model uh, in the family I can see how that can uh, that can have a number of different benefits, um, Luke. I want to I want to kind of come back to that, but you know before you you know you answered one of my questions about a family uh, version of the of the uh, of the solution, um, but you know this is I just want to share this with everybody. I I read that you your goal is to get a thousand dollars into one million. Is this correct? A thousand dollars into yeah, a million schools. A million schools to put a billion dollars into the controls of kids. Wow! Yeah. So that means say something and, more and about it, that. That's awesome. <laughs> That's it's neat. incredible, right? So, so this is what's called a BHAG or a big, hairy, audacious goal, and yeah. it's the kind of thing that when I start a company, I want to have this really awe-inspiring thing. Now, keep in mind, there's only a hundred thousand schools in America. So the BHAG that we've defined means that our company wants to be global, and we've just launched our first school in Montreal, Canada, which is very exciting, and we're gearing up to launch some schools in the Southern Hemisphere, which is starting their school year, which is half shifted from our Northern Hemisphere school year because of the sun and et cetera. So we want to be global, and we want to have that number. Now, that... That number means that those kids would have a billion dollars in capital. Now, I also have a version of that for just America. And because America is so wealthy in aggregate compared to other countries, my number for America is I want to get $10,000 into 100,000 schools in America, every school in America, and watch what happens when American kids alone have a billion dollars. And what I know how to do from my corporate days, which is kind of exciting, is I know how to build cross-collaborative software. Meaning when I was building the professional solution, we would have divisions working and collaborating with each other on the budgets. Imagine, and I'm just gonna pick California because I know it well, there's 3,200 high schools in California alone. If every school had $10,000, then in aggregate, those high school kids would have 30, $2 million. Just imagine in your mind 
what might the kids in California do if they had $32 million in their hands? I don't know, and I want to find out. So I'm building the software and the solution and the movement to find out what happens when we empower our kids with real money. This is freaking awesome. Uh, (laughs) What do you you think is going to happen? And, and, you know, I can imagine that there's going to be a very different uh, thing that's going to happen in Baton Rouge versus uh, Malibu. But, you know, what what do you... Which I hope so, right? Because the needs of Baton Rouge and their children and their environment is very different. Philadelphia is going to have different needs than Detroit and 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 uh, Denver, right? All places that we're working in. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust that as these kids go through. Now, keep in mind, as people think about what I'm saying is, I don't want this to be one and done. I want a participatory budgeting program for every school every year. And what I see happening in some of the schools that we started to work with is the number of kids who get involved increases, the amount of money that people feel comfortable giving to the kids increases. So the first year we did it at Fremont High School, it was $2,000. Now we're up to $5,000. So as that trust gets built, as, as the good work kind of creates a virtuous cycle, you will see differentiations in what kids are doing with the money in their, according to their needs and, and, and regional areas. And that's going to change. Now, the other thing I want to do in our software is uh, there's different ways to do voting, for example. Uh, you can do majority voting. You can do um, uh, electoral college voting. You can do ranked choice voting. Oh, that's really These interesting. These are all coming in. And so one of the things that we want the kids to do is they want to, we want to build in what we call a metacognitive uh, activity, which is deciding how to decide. So imagine the kids are given the options of voting and they say, how do we want to vote this year? Well, some cities in some countries use ranked choice voting, whereas when you're given your list of candidates, you rank your order as this is my first choice, this is my second choice. And if the first choice doesn't get a majority vote, you lop off your last choice and you allocate those votes to your first choice and then you retabulate. So ranked choice voting is a way to create a, a, a more inclusive mechanism of how uh, voting results work. And it's very powerful, by the way. Um, so Australia, for example, does ranked choice voting. New York is experimenting with it. But my point is this. In our children's lifetime, we're going to have blockchain-based I was just thinking that. And we're going to have ranked yeah. choice voting and different voting algorithms. We're building our software on those techniques and those technologies precisely so that we're teaching our kids what does it mean to be a active member of our society as our society becomes more digital? How do we teach our kids to do that? Um, and how do we feel comfortable that we're using blockchains and other mechanisms appropriately and safely? And this is part of that vision. Yeah, it's beyond the scope of this discussion, but I find it really right when you said that word, I was thinking about a, uh, a, a startup in the blockchain space that, um, boy, I read about them about four years ago, and uh, they were trying to change in the third world where democracy is trying to take hold, but they can't because the tampering of the votes. 
And mm-hmm. blockchain completely levels that field. And it completely just it, it puts every single vote has can't be tampered with. It's tamper proof. And as I'm as I'm hearing you talk this out, my mind is going just bigger and bigger. And I'm like, this can this can you can have it sounds to me like you can have a district representative actually hand over some of the budget a small little bit to children. And through the app, the children can participate in the district's budgeting of the money and how the tax dollars are being spent so that they can understand a little bit more how that whole system works. This is fascinating, Luke. This really is. Adam, this is why participatory budgeting is formally endorsed by the United Nations as one of the 20 most important innovations in democratic practices. The idea that a portion of the budget is put into the hands of citizens directly. Now, I've been doing participatory budgeting, as I said, for well more than a decade Mm. in in all sorts of life. And this is what I've learned. It is actually not a good idea to put 100% of the budget in the hands of citizens because what happens is you get what I call pitchfork politics. You get people who say like, oh, we don't need the city to have a permitting department. We can figure it out on our own. That's not true, right? To have a city that's livable, you do need standards around clean water and water distribution. Your your son's a plumber. He would tell you, yeah, you just can't connect a pipe up into the water supply. Like that's a way to contaminate it. You have to know what you're doing and it has to be inspected and there has to be standards for pipes, for powers, for roads, for a clean air. So there's a portion of the city budget, there's a portion of our taxes that we pay for sanitation and in public safety and other infrastructure. So you don't really want that in control directly of the citizens because we expect that we're hiring professionals who can serve those needs for us. But you don't want to go the other way and put no money in the hands of the citizens. Now, some countries are experimenting with that right amount. For example, Scotland allocates 1% of the national budget into community-based participatory budgeting programs. And it's exactly what you said, Adam, meaning the the kids in Baton Rouge are going to have different needs than the kids in Philadelphia. So there are times where we have a national standard, but then there's a time that we push that money down to have local autonomy, local control, local agency. And that's what we're doing with First Route directly. And yet, now you're starting to see this really big vision that we have about uh, what we can do with our total solution. And it's a completely attainable vision. I mean, for people who are listening, you might be thinking, oh, it's too big a vision. Actually, it's not. Because we don't have to solve every school tomorrow. And we don't have to get every school involved at collaborating. You can, you know, the big Harriet's goal is a 10-year goal. And as we pop one more school. Each school that we add is a small win, but collectively the set of small wins is a big win. Yeah. Wow. You don't have to win the game. You have to win. Uh, I'm, I'm watching the basketball playoffs right now. So this is timely, but it's associated with the NBA playoffs, right? You don't win the game by winning the game. You win the game by winning the possession. That's right. Yeah. Luke, I have three questions before we uh, we wind up because I want to be sensitive to your time here. The first question is um, obstacles. What are some of the obstacles that you've encountered 
with some of the school districts uh, that you've wanted to enter into and uh, what kind of really stands out so that if some of the listeners, myself included, want to begin these discussions in our communities about first route participatory budgeting uh, for our children, uh, what are we? What can we expect to bump up against, and how can we mitigate that? Well, the first is 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 I think the most like plainly obvious, right? Teachers and and school leaders are still dealing with recovery from COVID yeah. and the pandemic, and kids are still recovering from the the learning loss that associated with it. So, when people say no to us because of COVID. Uh, uh, restrictions. It's not no as in a bad idea. It's like, it's give us till next school year to start. So I, I think what you want to find is you, you do need a teacher who is going to work with you, but you also need to be sensitive that the teachers who are working with us are still recovering from the, from the pandemic. You might think that an issue is the money. The money I haven't found to be an issue. You can find a way to get a thousand bucks from either the combination of other parents or the school teacher or even corporations or other kinds of things. Like there's a way to get a little bit of money in the program. But I think the biggest one is just uh, capacity. Uh, of course, it's easier in states that have a personal finance mandate because you can kind of integrate our program into the classroom that already exists. So it's it's really just helping the, the, the teachers not feel like this is one more thing that they have to do. So that's that's the biggest obstacle. Um, what uh, the second question I have is when can we expect to see the family app? Because that sounds like something really interesting. You can do it right now. Oh, okay. People, now, what I'm going to warn everyone that the way we're doing our family app as part of our benefit corporation status is our family edition is free. So you can go to firstroot.co, you can download it from the iOS or Android app store so it runs on any device, and you can try it for a family member for free, uh, with a family for free, meaning eight participants can go through the entire program. Now, is it perfect? Not yet. So it's got some school-centric language. Um, we're working on uh, testing it out with families to, to make it a little broader. So maybe there's an addition that will be actually slightly different, but people can try it right now, Adam. Awesome. I'm going to, I, that's when we get off this call, that's one of the first things I'm going to be doing. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, as we wind this up, Luke, um, I'd like to, uh, one of the questions I always end my interviews with or conversations with is hearing from your expertise, from your experience, from your wins and losses, um, if you were to be sitting next to a new dad and he's got those concerns, he's got small children, you know, our kids are a little bit older. Some of my, a lot, a lot of my listeners, if not most of them are newer dads with small children and they're really, um, they're concerned about finances. They're concerned about where the money's going to come from. And is my kid going to have these same stresses, these same feelings, I know a lot of us struggle uh, in those moments with feelings of insignificance and inadequacy. We weren't able to, you know, provide like we wanted to. And a lot of that is really centered around money. I'm wondering if you could share with uh, those dads some of your wisdom centered around money and finances and being able to teach this to your children. What would that, what would that conversation sound like, Luke? 
I always give people the two pieces of advice that I was given when I had my first child. And there's, here are the two pieces of advice that I give to every parent, dad or mom or whomever. Um, number one, you have to allow yourself to grow, meaning you are an adult, you're having a child, and you're thinking of a teenager or a, a young adult, but you have a baby in your arms. And so what you need to do is you need to parent a baby. And so there's a lot of deeper meaning into that, but basically don't get ahead of your, I mean, there's all these um, aphorisms, right? Don't get ahead of your skis. Don't, you know, don't, don't start talking about stocks when the kid is four, <laughs> right? No, seriously. Yeah. And people, right, we, we parent, like many times my parenting mistakes were not adjusting to where my kid was. Uh, and, and I knew I had made, a, in a sense, a parenting, a dad mistake when my wife would say something like, hey, babe, how about we have a glass of wine and talk tonight? And I'm like, oh, no. And sometimes the mistake was, you know, honey, our child is eight and you're talking about driving a car. Why? Or sometimes it was, you know, honey, our child is 12 and you're acting like they're seven. You got to reset. So I think moms are somehow a little better at that natural resetting process. Dads, I think, lag a little bit. And so my advice to a dad is you don't, and most of the time we're too far ahead. Yeah. Dads are too far ahead. So you, you ratchet it back and be with, be the dad that your kid needs at that age and maybe a little bit ahead, but don't, don't talk to your four-year-old like they're a 12-year-old or a 16-year-old. So there. And the second thing is kind of funny, which is, pretty much almost ignore all other advice. And the reason I say that is because these are your kids. They're not my kids. And the way that you parent your kids is, is, the, is drawn from your own life experience. And if it wasn't great, fix it. If it was great, replicate it. My dad died when I was four and my mom raised six kids on her own. So technically, according to the psychology structures, we had a dysfunctional family. Now, we mostly figured it out, but every now and then I've had pretty open conversations with my kids. Like, look, I have no reference model for what I'm supposed to do here. And this is what I believe is right. And so I kind of say that to other people, like trust yourself. You, you, you know, your kids and you know yourself. Yeah, sure. Ask other dads, ask your wife or your partner, do all that stuff. But but you, 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 it's like, you got this. Um, now, regarding uh, the specifics of money, money is a life skill. Money starts the, kid, the, the moment your kid is born. Um, cognitively, the first financial transaction is a purchase request at around the age two, when the kid asks for fruit or cereal. And the first financial transaction that most dads do with their kids is what's called an assisted transaction. And what I mean by that is you go to the farmer's market and the kid is running around and you're all crazy and you're like, oh, I gotta get my kid doing something. So you hand them the bag of vegetables and you hand them a $5 bill and you say, go, go buy this. Cause you're just trying to figure out something to do, but without realizing it, you've actually taught the kid the most basic transaction in all of capitalism which is I have money and I want a good and a vendor is willing to sell it to me. So you as a dad are teaching your kids every step of the way. So let's, and I know I'm going over, but this is really important. No, it's fine. 
in, in our participatory budgeting program, we have no rules on what the kids spend the money on, which also means we have an opportunity to really educate kids in a way that games and simulations can't because guess what? The kids are going to make mistakes. We worked with one school where the kids wanted a 3D printer and they wanted something else. So they worked their budget so they could get the cheapest possible 3D printer from Amazon. And predictably, after about a month and a half of use, it, it broke. It was just not capable of being used at the rate that the school used it. It was a home model, not a more industrial strength model, if you will. Well, the teachers were brilliant. They didn't make the kids wrong. They turned it into a lesson about when do you buy quality and when do you buy cheap? And why is it so important to buy quality? Meaning um, a, a worker on a construction site needs to invest in boots, not fancy sneakers, right? That's right. And, and learning that. Now, as a, as, a, as a dad talking about finances, we joke, there's a couple of tools in my garage that are gathering dust. And there's a couple of tools that I never knew I would use as much as I do, but it, man, I use my Sawzall all the bloody time. It's like the best tool ever. I never would have imagined it when I bought it. So I've had conversations with my kids about purchases that I've made that have worked out, purchases I've made that I haven't, that haven't worked out. If your kids only see success, you're inadvertently protecting them from small mistakes. And the, and as a dad, trust me, you would rather have your kid make a small mistake in a school environment with participatory budgeting that they can talk through with their peers and their, and their teachers rather than making the first big mistake on their own by buying a car that they can't afford or not realizing that the apartment that they want to rent has a two month uh, prepayment for their lease and they didn't budget for it. And then they call you up, dad, I'm in a jam. I signed a lease <laughs> and I don't have the money for it. Yeah. What do I do? Yep. That's a tough one for a dad to recover from because you may not have the money to help them out. So those are the things that I think are really important as dads is, is we're not perfect. We're dads. That's okay. Wow. That's, there's a lot of wisdom there, Luke. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for breaking that down like that. Uh, so I'm certain that any parent who's listening to this interview is going to really want to at least look into taking that next step. How would you guide us to take the next step into first route uh, and being able, or if they have questions directly with you, how would you like uh, them to reach out to you, uh, to your company, to begin to get involved in uh, local, in their school districts, getting participatory budgeting uh, uh, in that school community, in that district? Uh, where do we begin? Uh, the best place to begin is our website, www.firstroot.co, not com, but .co. Yep. We've got uh, as much as, you know, we've got, as much material as we can get out there. Of course, we need to continue to improve it. We're building out parent kits. We're building out teacher kits. There's videos. There's sample emails that you can use to introduce this to teachers. If the teachers start a program, there's ways that they can bring in other parents. Our software actually for schools has a coaching feature where the kids create the ideas, but parents can add comments 
to help the kids develop their ideas. Oh, cool. So you can become a coach. And, and again, this is this idea of we want the kids to have the ideas and we want the kids to, to do the work of refining it. And certainly we want the kids to vote. But kids need a little coaching. Sure. So when the kid says, oh, we want to get basketball nets for outside, a parent could say, okay, that sounds great. How many basketball nets do you need? That simple question can, you know, who would approve the basketball nets? Or we want to paint a mural. Okay, great. Where do you want to paint the mural? What kind of paint do you need? Simple questions that can help the students be successful are things that dads can do um, and, and really contribute to. Great, great. Well, Luke, I want to, uh, before we wrap this up, I just, now that I understand this whole thing and I've got really, you know, just, I'm, I'm, it's super inspired. I want to thank you for that. But more importantly, I want to thank you for the work that you have done. And it's pretty obvious to me, I'm sure it's obvious to the listeners that You've helped uh, change the lives and the, the sort of the um, the paradigm of how m many many young people view finances and uh, help them to better understand that, which of course is going to, in the long run, better their lives and better the lives of their communities. So for that work, I thank you, and for the work that's happening today in the schools going on right now as we're having this conversation, uh, people are involved in this, and young people and children are learning. And it sounds to me like in the future, if you get to that one billion uh, goal, you will have transformed the lives of many, many young people and literally changed the future uh, of not just our communities, but the whole world. And uh, this is wonderful work. And uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing that. It's so, so important that we do it. So thank you. Thank you for having me as a guest. You're welcome. <laughs>